Well, good morning, family. You can open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians. We're going to finish up this book today. I'm kind of excited about that. Finishing anything is a good thing, right? I'm also excited because it's pretty straightforward. Pretty straightforward. Sometimes you get into those passages like poor Joel had to speak on two or three weeks ago, and it's like, okay, what did we just read? Not the case with this one. This passage is nice and clear. That's the good news. The bad news is there's nothing easy about carrying it out. There's nothing easy about carrying it out. And I think what you're going to see is you're going to see a very clear directive, a central idea, a main thought. But that main thought, as I studied and studied, it kept going deeper and deeper and deeper, and more truths kept becoming clearer and clearer, to the point where we've got about seven different points that we need to tackle. And hopefully you got your, your handout. If you're a note taker, I'm hoping that this would be useful to you. If you're not a note taker, I'm hoping maybe you'd get to be a note taker today, because I'm hoping that this, this time will be a start. I'm hoping that this time will be a start to us taking these seven points and really chewing on them, thinking on them, continuing on with this. Maybe it's no accident that there's seven different points and there's seven days between uh, the next time we get to meet. So maybe we could be looking at one point of these each day. You determine it, but I'd really suggest that we continue on and we continue looking at this as the week goes on. Why? Because I can tell you for three weeks digging into it, it's just, it keeps going further and further and further, reaching more of my life, asking more of me, asking me to honor God. Remember just a couple minutes ago, we said, we'll be a church ready for you. Well, I would urge you to think about what do you want to be doing when the Lord Jesus comes back? How do you want to be found? And I think today's message has a lot of insight in how you can be prepared, how you can be ready. Father, we turn to you, as always, just completely dependent. Nothing good will come from this time if your spirit doesn't work. No truth will be shared if your spirit doesn't speak through to us. No obedience will be achieved if your spirit doesn't work in our hearts. Father, we... Uh, we thank you that you're eager to do a work in us. We're thankful that you're eager to lead us into obedience. We're grateful that you've given us everything that we need for life and godliness. We're excited that we can learn more of you and grow deeper in love with you and show you more and more how grateful we are. We need your help in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to start reading in verse 4. Ben did a great job last week, but I'm just going back a couple of verses. I think you'll see eventually that there's some context there. And we're going to read through the whole passage, and I want you to think, try and search for the main point. The main point. And then don't get too excited, because we haven't solved it. We've got six other powerful points to discuss. Verse 4, And we are confident in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we commanded you. Remember, this is Paul speaking to the Thessalonians, a group of relatively new Christians, saved out of a pagan lifestyle, eager to live for the Lord, but pretty raw, pretty young, pretty new. And so verse 4, after lots of time spent with them, after now almost two complete, uh, what we would call books, they would call letters, being given to them, he can now say in verse 4, and we are confident in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command you. 
May the Lord lead your hearts into a full understanding and expression of the love of God and the patient endurance that comes from Christ. And now, dear brothers and sisters, we give you this command in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Stay away from all believers who live idle lives and don't follow the tradition they receive from us. For you know that you ought to imitate us. We were not idle when we were with you. We never accepted food from anyone without paying for it. We worked hard day and night so we could not be a burden to any of you. We certainly had the right to ask you to feed us, but we wanted to give you an example to follow. Even while we were with you, we gave you this command. Those unwilling to work will not get to eat. Yet we hear that some of you are living idle lives, refusing to work and meddling in other people's business. We command such people and urge them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and work to earn their own living. As for the rest of you, dear brothers and sisters, never get tired of doing good. Take note of those who refuse to obey what we say in this letter. Stay away from them so they'll be ashamed. Don't think of them as enemies, but warn them as you would a brother or sister. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you his peace at all times and in every situation. The Lord be with you all. Here's my greeting in my own handwriting, Paul. I do this in all my letters to prove they are from me. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Did you sense the main point? Work, work. But as we said, this is the tip of the iceberg. And I think as we understand more about this, it'll emphasize the importance of work, but it's gonna frame it in a way that we realize, hey, this, this really talks about every aspect of my life, not just my nine to five job. Those of you who are retired were excited, weren't you? You thought you were gonna get the day off. You're done working, you've worked diligently, maybe 30, 40 years, and now you're retired, so chill out, right? Nope, sorry, there's gonna be more. There's gonna be more. And it's a good thing that there's more because your life is just as useful now as it ever was in the career days, right? So let's dig into it. We're gonna look at seven points, are you ready? Three of them are gonna be positive practices. Positive practices. Any of you who are gonna lead people, teach people, or nurture people would do well to learn these three positive practices. Many of you do them already, but maybe just a good reminder. Three positive practices. We're gonna have three pointed precepts, very direct commands from Almighty God. We already heard, in the name of Jesus Christ, these commands are given. Bam, here it is, right? Three pointed precepts. Thankfully, we'll end with one powerful piece. One powerful piece. So as we dig in, I'm gonna start with the positive practices. Maybe you'll hate me less if I start with the nice stuff because I was so convicted. I was so convicted from this passage. And if you're half as convicted as I am, you're gonna be pretty ticked. Luca's gonna throw something, I can just tell, and uh, it ain't gonna be pretty. But these three practices are very, very positive. Very, very positive. And so let's dig into them. First of all, verse six. Paul is teaching these young believers. Many of you are teaching kids. Many of you are parents and you're teaching your kids. Many of you are youth leaders and you're teaching young people. Many of you are grandparents and you're nurturing and teaching and raising up your grandkids. Many of you are men and you're instructed to teach the younger men. 
Many of you are women, and you're asked to nurture and encourage and disciple the younger women. We're never escaping this, this call to teach and to empower and to educate, right? And so verse 6 gives some tips. And now, dear brothers and sisters, we give you this command in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's the first pet practice. When we're teaching, make sure, number one, that we identify the authority. Write that down if you could. Identify the authority. Whose words are these? Well, these are Jesus Christ's words. And so as I'm teaching, as I'm encouraging, the real benefit of me instructing will come when I can instruct based on God's instruction. Let me give you an example. Why should Aaron treat Anna nicely? Well, it's not just because his dad wants him to, but far more deeper than that. In Ephesians 4, we know that we need to be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. Do you see the backup? Do you see the power? Aaron, be kind to your sister, not because KT says so, but because Almighty God commands you. Do you see the authority? When we challenge students at youth group, it can't just because the leaders think it's a good idea if they don't throw food. It's because God would lay forward a testimony and an example of not being wasteful, taking care of what we have, being uh, considerate of those that'll use the building after we're done on a Wednesday night. See where we're going with this? Paul goes right to the heart of the matter and he says, hey, this is Jesus Christ's command to you. Does that change things? It should. It should. So when we are challenging others, let's identify the authority. Now, this is a good filter, too. If I'm going to ask my son to do something, if I can't somehow find the reason in the character or command of God, then it probably ain't worth telling him to do it. I remember an example in a parenting book I read. He said, uh, my son would lay crosswise in his bed and it bugged me. And he said, I would go and say, son, you need to put your head on the top of the bed. And then it hit him. He's like, why? Is there anything in the character and nature of God that would require him to put his head at the top of the bed and not the foot of the bed? No. And so he realized, well, then I really shouldn't be telling Aaron to put his head in a certain place in the bed. See where we're going with this? We do this often. We have our own pet projects. We have our own thoughts. And we can translate our own opinions onto those who we have authority over, maybe without any good reason. If we can reserve our challenge for God's principles, A, we're going to be more effective. B, we're not wasting a minute of time. So every command, everything worth obeying is grounded in the person and nature of God himself. Why speak truth? Because Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. This is powerful, too, for uh, showing the difference between our following or our religion, if you will, and any other religion. Other religions tell their kids to, to tell the truth, and yet we have the authority grounded in the person of Jesus Christ. That's powerful. So Paul comes to say, hey, the authority here is Jesus Christ himself. Now, I got to tell you, that's a warning. That's a signal that Paul's bringing out the big guns, okay? It's saying that, hey, what I'm about to tell you is not easy, and it's going to sting, and it's going to be very serious, and yet just as important that we follow it. 
So a good positive practice, but a hint to the rest of us that something powerful is coming. What else do we see as far as positive practices? Well, if you continue, you, uh, you definitely hear the main point, work hard, work hard. But then we see another really important thing in verse 4. And uh, Colonel Preston has taught me a lot about this. Paul, even before verse 6, had prepped the ground, had prepared the soil. He says in verse 4, And we are confident in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we commanded you. We are confident in the Lord that you are doing the things and will continue to do the things that we've commanded you. What is that? That's an encouragement. That's a well done. That's a hey, attaboy, right? Is it an accident that Paul starts with that? Absolutely not. The best teachers, the best parents will lead instruction with encouragement first. So I urge you to write down, encourage before correcting. Paul's doing this. Now, for those of you that know, this is another warning that when Paul's taking the time to encourage them first, get ready, Kevin, because something big is coming, right? And nevertheless, we can learn from that. Hey, let's encourage first. Mark would say in the, in the military, they talked about how it really takes 10 positive encouragements to really soothe the heart of, a, of an enlistee, of a soldier, so that he's prepared for one challenge. Am I right, Mark? 10 positive encouragements to get my heart accustomed to willingly receive one challenging correction. Think about your own parenting. Think about your own leadership. Is your challenging, is your teaching characterized by 10 positive encouragements for every one hard thing that we have to say? Boy, I struggle with that at times. And yet a positive practice that I think God could really use. The last point, the last positive practice is really brought out here uh, in, in, in a powerful way. Verse 7. Verse 7. Remember what's the main point of the passage? Work hard. Verse 7, he's going to back up this command with a very positive practice. Verse 7, for you know that you ought to imitate us. You know that you ought to imitate us. We were not idle when we were with you. We never accepted food from anyone without paying for it. We worked hard day and night so we would not be a burden to any of you. We certainly had the right to ask you to feed us, but we wanted to give you an example to follow. Even when we were with you, we gave you this command, those unwilling to work will not get to eat. Now, where is this practice? This practice is that teaching along with an example is way more powerful. Write that down. Teaching along with an example is way more powerful. If I'm telling Aaron he needs to be reading his Bible every day, what's the powerful example that I can give? Oh, I better be reading that word of God, right? It's sort of hollow. It's sort of empty. If I'm asking Aaron to do something that I'm unwilling to exemplify for him, you follow me? Anytime we lead, anytime we teach, it's most powerful when we give the example. Now, parents, we know we've always got that beautiful caveat, do as I say, not as I do, right? And that's an acknowledgement that, hey, we're not perfect. So your parents are not perfect. This may be the first time you realize that, right? 
Nonetheless, your youth leaders are flawed individuals, and there will come a time where they're going to challenge you to do something that they struggle with. Don't let that discourage you. Don't let that throw you off. Okay? So this isn't something that we can only challenge if we're perfect. No. But the reality is this, that if I'm going to lay out a challenge, it's far more powerful if the example that I'm setting forth is consistent. Fair? Fair point? So three very positive practices. I think we do really well to imitate these three. If one, we identify the authority as God himself, it's far more powerful as we teach and challenge and exhort. Two, we encourage before we correct. That's going to have a way more effective uh, result of teaching. And finally, if we teach along with showing an example, this is most powerful. This is most powerful. So what's all this leading up to? This is leading up to a humdinger of a challenge for these Thessalonians and an intense challenge for the Great Adventure Church. So Paul's doing all the right things. He's leading up. He's going to be an effective teacher. What is he getting at? Well, we move to three pointed precepts. Three pointed precepts. And he starts it. He starts it. In verse 6, Now, dear brothers and sisters, we give you this command in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Stay away from all believers who live idle lives and don't follow the tradition they receive from us. Now, what's the main point of this passage? That was weak sauce. What is it? Work hard. Is that the first command that's laid out here? Look at it. It's not. What is the first command? The first command is... Stay away from those who are idle. This is tough. This is tough. But this is very, very important. Paul challenges, number one, he challenges the Thessalonians to challenge sin. Don't ignore sin. Challenge and don't ignore sin. That's powerful precept number one or pointed precept number one. Challenge and do not ignore sin. This is a harsh but very, very important concept. Let's jump down. Let's jump down to the other verses that are going to pick up on this same thought. Verse 14. Look at verse 14. It, it accompanies verse 6 and 7. It says, Take note of those who refuse to obey what we say in this letter. Stay away from them so they will be ashamed. Don't think of them as enemies, but warn them as you would a brother or a sister. This brings up a really tough concept. Some other passages for you to write down. Titus 3, Matthew 18, and even sprinkle in 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians 5 is sort of the warm-up. He says, warn those, right? 2 Thessalonians 3 is very clear. We cannot gloss over, we cannot act as if sin doesn't exist in each other's lives. There's a concept, I think, I don't know where it started. I think, I think it came from secular humanism. Ask Mike, he's the worldview teacher. But secular humanism would say, hey, you're okay, I'm okay, we're all okay. You do what you think is right. I'm going to do what I think is right. And let's just live in peace, right? That's not what God says. God calls us 
to challenge and never ignore the sin in each other's lives. This is hardcore because you do not want to do this and I do not want to do this, but this is the word of God. What was the authority? Jesus Christ himself says, take note of those who refuse to obey what we say in this letter, stay away from them so they will be ashamed. Now let's dig into a little bit more of what this means. I think 1 John is a really good pattern for this. Bruce and I, and I know Bruce and others, have been wrestling with some of the concepts of 1 John, right? And 1 John talks about, of course, knowing Christ as your Savior, but it also talks about abiding in Christ, staying close to Christ, living in happy fellowship with Christ. And the reality is, is that when we sin, which we will, that fellowship is broken. That fellowship is broken. Think of it this way. In a marriage, when your husband really messes up, okay, when he really hurts you deeply, until that sin and hurt is taken care of, the relationship just isn't, isn't quite the same. You notice that? That's the message here, that when we sin against God, that relationship, that fellowship, that tight abiding bond is broken. But thankfully we have 1 John where it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The concept here has been interpreted multiple ways. You heard the term shun, a shunning. I took it from the office. Remember Dwight Schrute would shun and he would shun and refuse to talk and then he would unshun so he could get a nice, and then he would reshun. This idea of shunning, I refuse to acknowledge your existence. You are dead to me, as Uncle Sato would say in Karate Kid 2. <laughs> that's one view. I don't think that's the biblical view. That's one view that if, that if there's an unrepentant brother or sister in the Lord, we shun them. We shun them, and we pretend they don't exist. I don't believe that's what Scripture is calling for. Another approach is that there are certain elements of fellowship that we do together. It's supposed to be very close and connected with God when we pass this cup and this bread from one to another. That's a symbol of our fellowship in the Lord Jesus. And so one view is that if there's a brother out of fellowship, meaning that he's unrepentant and he's refused to obey the calling of the Lord, that he would be restricted from participating in this symbol of fellowship together. That's another practice, another view. That's possible, but it goes way deeper than that. God himself says that whom he loves, he disciplines, right? Your brother or sister that you truly love will have no misunderstanding that they are against the sin that you refuse to repent from. Teens, I got to challenge you on this, as well as myself. Don't gloss over the worldly living that's going on around you. You need to not only discern God's will for your life, you need to be aware of your fellow young Christians around you. And if I or you are living a life out of range of what God wants, it is your job to call out your peers on that. Is that fun? No. 
One of the things I loved, I'm going to embarrass two people here, but uh, three actually, but I'll use Wes as the scapegoat. Between junior year and senior year, uh, Wes had led for integrity really all his years, but between junior and senior year, Wes really understood that his call was to lead vocally and actively. Fair to say, brother? And he did that well. And one thing that included was you could no longer just live however you want in front of meek and mild Wes, and nothing was going to be said. When you stood out as far as a sin or as a, a failure to uphold the standard that God would have for a tri-state Christian school student, Wes was faithfully there to call you out. Some of you maybe were called out by Wes. Not fun. He's tall. Intimidating. But he did it in love. He did it carefully. But there was no doubt that Brother Wes loved you enough to say, hey, that disrespect to that teacher is not honoring to the Lord. Let's get it in gear. That's the same kind of pattern we need with each other. You need to call out my life. You need to be loving enough of me to challenge me. Now, we can read dozens of other verses of how to do it. We do it lovingly. We do it carefully. We do it after prayer and consideration. But if you are not calling out your brothers and sisters in the Lord, you are ignoring what the Jesus Christ had commanded us by way of the Thessalonian letter. Very important. Do not live and let live. That's not fellowship. That's not godly living. Godly living means that we are going to acknowledge the sin in each other's lives and lovingly, humbly, and graciously point it out. Those of you being corrected, take this to heart, that when you're corrected, you're being corrected because you're loved. Correction is not fun. And especially if you have a 17-year-old humbly and gently coming to a 45-year-old or a 65-year-old or a 75-year-old saying, hey, brother or sister, I gotta, I gotta challenge you on this. Nothing fun about that. But it's important. It's biblical. Know that it's out of love. And so you've got some hardcore, tough love going on here in Thessalonica. You've got Paul challenging the believers, call out the sin among you. Do not stand for it. Make it very clear that if KT is going to be in happy fellowship with this community of believers, that he's going to repent of the laziness and idleness that he's guilty of. Very hard. Very hard. And I want to challenge you that we need to do this. Now, there's all kinds of ramifications, and I won't go too deep into this, but we've gotten so bad at lovingly calling each other out. We've gotten so good at glossing over each other's sins that it's also done something else. It's put us in regular contact with people that are pretty bad influences on us. If I'm ignoring the sin in my brother or sister, it numbs me from the reality is, hey, I could be being pulled down by that brother instead of pulling them up. And I want to challenge you that some of you are being pulled down. It's not foolishness, the old bad character corrupts good company. That's, that's real. And if I'm not discerning and loving enough to challenge my Christians when they're out of line, then I can easily get numb to the reality that I am associating and being influenced by ungodly behavior. Being unequally yoked is not just an only a concept about not dating an unbeliever or not marrying an unbeliever. It goes way beyond that. Are you in relationships that are nurturing and encouraging? Are you in equally yoked 
spiritual influence where you can be influenced positively as well as influencing positively. See where we're going with this? Take this seriously. This is important. You have choices where you spend your time. You're not called to be friends with every Christian that walks the planet. And you need to discern. You need to discern who and where and when you spend that time. Not every influence will be equally as good as other influences, and it will impact you. When someone else is using language, have you noticed this? That's displeasing to the Lord. What's going to come into my thoughts? That same language. I had a student say, I heard the uh, F-bomb so many times that I started to kind of hear it in my own head. Oh, Thankfully, he and his parents took steps to get him out of that situation. Praise the Lord. But don't be naive to the reality that when I'm failing to call out my brothers and sisters, I also get numb to the poor character around me, and I can easily fit into that. Brothers and sisters, adults, if I am uh, looking past gossip that's happening day in and day out among my peer group, well... I'm going to be mighty tempted to, to slip into that area of gossip. Do we love each other enough to say no? No. The context here is, do we love each other enough to say, don't waste your life with idleness? Work hard. Work hard. So challenge one, pointed precept one, challenge sin. Don't ignore sin. Now, the second one is the main point here of the passage. Work hard to provide for your family. I think verse 11 and verse 10 sum it up pretty clearly. Those unwilling to work will not get to eat. Pretty unclear, right? Not really, is it? Work is from God. Chad did a great job several weeks ago of getting us ready for this. When was work instituted? Anyone know? Before the fall. Read Genesis 1 through 3. You can even go to four or five, six if you want some great follow-up. You'll see that Adam was put into the garden to do what? To work it. To work it. Thankfully, he was given a helper. He was given Eve, so A, for, co- for companionship, and B, to help work the garden. Work was wonderful for Adam and Eve before the fall. Work was fulfilling. Work was pleasing to them and to the Lord. And then the fall happened, and what was the curse of man? Work will get tough. And I think that's twofold. One, work is harder because of sin. The ground doesn't produce the corn like it should because of weeds and sin. Fair to say? But men especially, we will have a bent towards laziness. We will have a bent towards laziness. Hard work will go against our flesh. It'll go against the world. It'll go against the devil. And so the challenge is that we must work hard. We must work hard. Colossians 3, turn there with me. Colossians 3, 23. Powerful challenges. Powerful challenges. Colossians 3, verse 23 says, Do your work heartily as unto the Lord. Verse 23, work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord. Work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord. When you're working in the Emmaus kitchen, you're not working for Emmaus Bible College. You're working for Almighty God. So if you take the cell phone out and you decide to text your buddy while you're on the clock, who are you stealing from? Almighty God. Almighty God. When I slack off on the job, 
I'm not just stealing time and therefore money from my employer. I am stealing from Almighty God because that work is to be done heartily as to the Lord. See the challenge there? See the challenge there? Now, work heartily as unto the Lord. It's biblical, it's godly for you to provide for your family. And I'm thankful that in today's day and age, that's not just a man thing anymore. Our society has allowed, ladies, for you to be productive in in earning income in ways that uh, our sisters weren't able to probably even back in the time of the Thessalonians. That's a good thing. That's an improvement. And while you as families have to seek the roles that each of you would have on that, the bottom line is that we all need to be working hard. We all need to be working hard. So the second pointed precept is work to provide for your family. Work to provide for your family. Write that down. Now again, some of you are retired. Congratulations, you're past that phase. Is your work done? No. We see another subtle but vital Precept, point number three under the pointed precepts, avoid idleness. This was a waha moment for me. This was an aha, oh. Look back at the passage again in 2 Thessalonians 3, and I want you to look for a couple of key points. In the example that Paul is explaining, right, how often did Paul work, did it say? What does it say? We worked what? Day and night, day and night. Why were they working day and night? Because they did their work for the Lord ministering during the day. Did they get paid for that? No. Then what did they do at night? Then they worked to sew tents. Why did they sew tents? To make money, to make money. Do you realize that the work went way beyond just making money? When Paul laid out the example of working day and night, was he talking about just work hard enough to make money? That was part of it. And that was sadly missing by some of the brothers and sisters, but it went way beyond that. Avoid idleness. Avoid idleness. This is a a fascinating thing that you as a Christian are called not just to make a living. You're called to work for the Lord day and night. Day and night. Each of us has 24 hours in a given day to glorify and serve the Lord. Fair to say? And I think the fascinating challenge is is all the commentators that I studied here, they were quick to point out, uh, really in verse 11, yet we hear that some of you are living idle lives, refusing to work, and meddling in other people's business. Other passages say busybodies. Do you have that in your passage? This brings out an insightful realization. Lazy people are not doing nothing, right? Very few people I know lay on their back and watch the ceiling all day. We're doing something, follow me? And the point of this passage was you've got plenty of things that will keep you busy, The reality is, is what is productive use of time and what is idle use of time. Another commentator said, they're not, it's idle less, meaning they were doing something. They were spending their time doing something. They were busy. The problem was it was the wrong busyness. This is powerful and cutting because it goes to the point that we need to avoid wasting time. That's point three, avoid 
wasting time. Every minute is precious. How many years do you have on this earth? Anyone want to take a guess? I'm hoping 90, 95, right? Let's say this is 95 years of living. Okay, fair, Megan, right there? Eternity is going to head this way. Where does eternity go compared to 95 years? Does it reach the window? Oh, yeah. Does it keep going? Does it cross the Wisconsin Bridge, way past Keeler? How far does eternity go? Do you realize that the work you do in these 95 years is going to impact your eternity? That's powerful. I got 95, maybe 95 years to run hard for the Lord. And I need each of us, we need each of us to evaluate and take inventory. Which of the activities of my day are promoting God-honoring activity and which are wastes of time? Maybe write a follow-up note on that. Where am I miss wasting time? That's the question. Where am I wasting time? And I think we would do very well to take inventory of each day. Is it possible to sleep too much? Absolutely. Consider that. Am I sleeping too much? But the waking hours, am I honoring God with each of those points? Now, Bruce and I were talking this morning that God made Sabbath. He made refreshment. He made rest, right? But even how we rest can be God-honoring and it can be dishonoring to the Lord. Evaluate where God's time is being used. And let me challenge you on a couple of things as I've been challenged. I was challenged by some of you to give up uh, some social media for 40 days. And many of you went off of Instagram for 40 days and others are off of Twitter for 40 days. Now, why did they do that? Because they felt like they were maybe wasting some time on those social media platforms. I gave up cocaine for Lent this year. <laughs> Wasn't nearly as hard as I thought it was. No, I'm, I gave up social media too, but my, my kids said, that doesn't count because you were never on it, Dad. Okay, fine. <laughs> but my point is this. Those of you, talk to us, those of you that chose to give that up. Why did you do that? Did you find value in that? Was there something impressive in, hey, maybe using that time differently? Megan and Edward and, and some family members were having lunch with a, a friend who lives far from here. And we were talking about social media and she said, oh, I'm doing so well. I've got my social media down to seven hours a day. And Megan said, oh, good job. <laughs> but where's, where's the line? Where's the line? All of you have a beautiful feature of your phone. You can go and you can look at how much time you spent on each app on your phone. Now my guess is, Mark, how's your Instagram time? Is it under control, brother? <laughs> Good. But do you see where I'm going on this? Part of this challenge, part of this challenge is that every minute of every day is to be lived for the glory of God. And it's very possible that my text messaging, that my football watching, that my March Madness participation, that my Instagram, that my Twitter, that my Facebook, that my internet Google searches, it could easily be out of line with what God would call me to. Now, I wanted to bring the book. Christy and I had a very collegiate afternoon. She read C.S. Lewis, and I watched college basketball. It was very 
wonderful. But she read this line on page 335, and I wanted to bring it, but it was C.S. Lewis warned us, be careful about calling someone else's use of time wasteful. That's important, right? Chad can glorify God. Will can glorify God by tinkering with his guitar so that he's learning and practicing so he can lead us in worship better, right? Be a waste of time for me to tinker with the guitar for three hours, not for Will. See what I'm going with this? I got to be careful about judging your life. You've got to be careful about judging my life. But we can be faithful about asking each other, how are you doing on this? Here's a challenge. Are you ready? If you enjoy social media, write out a paragraph on how Instagram glorifies God. Write out a paragraph of how your Instagram usage glorifies God. I'd love for you to share it with me because maybe I need to get on it, right? But write out, how does my Twitter glorify God? How does my Facebook glorify God? How does me watching the Vikings glorify God? What would it be like if we thought about each thing that we did like that? You want a crazy challenge? Write down in 15-minute increments this week of how you used God's time. How's that? Write down in 15-minute increments of how you used God's time this week. I think we'd have some powerful insights. And I was shocked that when Paul was challenging to avoid idleness, it wasn't just, hey, work hard to provide your family and then you're good. The challenge was, hey, the example you've been given is every minute of every day needs to be used to glorify God. And the avenues that I'm pursuing that are a waste of time are dishonoring to Almighty God. We've got this amount of time, my friends. We've got this snippet. Let's make it count for eternity. Let's make it count for eternity. And thankfully, we wrap up with a powerful piece in verses 16 and 17. I think for the Thessalonians, it would have been peaceful that Paul validates and, and, and uh, authenticates this letter. He had a way of signing it, different maybe than we would, but he put his signature on it to say, here's my greeting in my own handwriting. You can know this is really from me. If you remember from Joel Carter, there were probably some imposters sending messages to the Thessalonians. So Paul gives them a little bit of peace to say, hey guys, this is really me. Take this to heart. Praise the Lord for that. But earlier than that, verse 16, look at this and grab onto this and own this. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you his peace at all times and in every situation. The Lord be with you all. Here's the powerful piece. As we obey the precepts laid out, that will bring us peace. How do I have this peace? I have this peace by obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. I have this peace by calling out sin around me. Now that sounds ridiculous. What a stressful thing to call out my brothers and sisters. No, when I do what God wants, that will bring peace. Does it bring easy? easy? No but it brings peace, it brings joy, it brings fulfillment. When I work to provide for my family, that should bring me peace, that should bring me fulfillment. When I avoid idleness, when I willingly choose to not spend my time with A so that I can instead focus on B, that should bring us enormous peace, that should bring us enormous joy. So, positive practices, pointed precepts, and a powerful peace that those abide in the Lord Jesus, those who obey these commands, that God has laid out can have joy and peace and fulfillment in ways that wastes of time will never provide. You ever waste time and then feel empty? You've had that? I have, okay? 
No, God has a peaceful approach by using every minute for his glory. What would this church family look like if we could move towards that? What would the community of Dubuque look like if we could start using more of the time to honor the Lord? I'm excited about it. Father, we close in, in gratitude to you, thankful that you were very clear with us in your word. We know, Lord, that we need to call each other out. We know that we need to work hard to provide for our families. We know that we have to avoid wasting time. Father, we know that we can encourage each other, uh, that we can make sure and identify the authority as I challenge others, that we can uh, build up and, and talk about the good things as well as the hard things, that we can show example, Lord, and, and powerfully impact those around us. Lord, we're thankful that obedience in these matters will bring peace, that it'll bring a joy in you, a comfort in you, an abiding fulfillment, Lord, that we're living out your purpose and calling for our lives. Make these things true in our hearts and lives, please. In Jesus' name, amen.